This is a trigger warning. This episode of Exodus contains strong language and descriptions of sexual violence. Around a year after my dad died, I am showering in our tiny little rondavel with a very, very small bathroom. Erika Bornman is now 16 and living with her mother at the Wasiza Mandu Mission in KwaZulu-Natal. It's a chilly morning. It's cold and I close the window and then I remember nothing. My mother tells me that she was on her way out and she heard me moaning and she heard a thud as I fell. I was unconscious for a few hours. What had happened is the little gas geyser, the flame, had burnt off all the carbon dioxide and was now producing carbon monoxide. So I basically had a case of carbon monoxide poisoning. What I do remember is when I wake up and a few hours has gone by, is Elo sitting on my bed, praying for me that I will come back to life. The carbon monoxide poisoning in the shower marks the beginning of the collapse of Erika's health. I then start having all sorts of health issues, severe stomach aches, migraines. I, I'm just really, really ill. And so every now and again, my mother makes an appointment for me with Elo and he prays for me and he prays for healing. And I'm never healed. The migraines continue, the stomach aches continue, and I just think, you know, this is not Elo's fault. Clearly there's something wrong with me. If God is healing all these other people and he doesn't want to heal me, then there's something wrong with me. A year goes by. Then one morning, her mother sits her down in their rendezvous in the second row on the edge of the mission. My mother calls me and says that the school board has met. They have decided to expel me. Because for the entire year, I have not once confessed my sins. And that goes against school policy, and they are going to expel me. And that leaves her with no choice but to kick me out as well. I need to pack a suitcase, walk up to the main road, and hitchhike a ride and go make a life for myself somewhere. I later understand that my aunts and uncles, any of them would have taken me in, but right now I don't know that. And so I set about finding a counsellor so that I can start confessing my sins so that they will just please keep me in school and that I can please just stay. Erica's new counsellor is a man named Musikunene. Later in life, he'd be accused of manufacturing hoax emails to assist former President Jacob Zuma's political campaign before being jailed for life for murdering an estate agent called Lynn Hume. But before Musi Gunene was locked up for life, he was Erika's counsellor at the mission at Kwasizaband. This is Exodus, Chapter 3. I pick a man who is very intelligent, very wise, very charismatic, very clever, he speaks like five languages. I start going to him to confess my sins. He's not an old guy, he's probably in his late 20s, married with two kids. And very often the confession of sins actually turn into political discussions. 
He teaches me about apartheid and he teaches me about what it was actually like for the majority of South Africans to be growing up at a time when I was growing up that I had no idea about. So I hero worship this man. He is a father figure. He is just, I look forward to spending time with him. It's just amazing. And then it is 1990 in the Republic of South Africa. After half a decade under the state of emergency, P.W. Boerter has been deposed. And this guy, F.W. de Klerk, is the last National Party president. Today, I'm able to announce far-reaching decisions. Here, he announces the end of apartheid to an all-white parliament. Legislation is to be tabled shortly for the repeal of the Land Acts of 1913. Inside the House of Parliament, the honorable members of an even more conservative, conservative party stage a walkout. The prohibition of the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist Congress. But in 1990, the ship has sailed for the conservative and the national party. (laughs) The government has taken a firm decision to release Mr. Mandela unconditionally. Two weeks later, here we are in the Cape Winelands, on the road between Paul and Franschhoek, outside the then-Victor Verstaad prison, now the Drakenstein Correctional Center. And the crowd getting excited. There's Mr. Mandela, Mr. Nelson Mandela, a free man taking his first steps into a new South Africa. Mrs. Winnie Mandela next to him, waving to the crowds. Then, a few hours later, on Cape Town's Grand Parade, Madiba is flanked by Sir Ramaphosa and Walter Sisulu, who introduces him here. I therefore present Nelson Mandela to you. Madiba addresses South Africans for the first time in decades. Amanda! Amanda! In Africa! Democracy will dawn on the 27th of April, 1994, but there are four more brutal years to come for the residents of Kwasizabantu as surely as for everyone else. Difference is, at KSB, the brutality is not inflicted by order of the National Party government, but under the leadership of the Messiah, Erla Stegen, as well as Hilda Dube, a prophetess, and her daughter, Lydia Dube, who was once raised from the dead by Erla Stegen, and by 2020, we'll call the shots at Kwasizabantu. We will talk lots more about Hilda and Lydia Dube in the next episode. Kwasizabantu, remember, is a Sizulu for the place where people are helped. In 1990, and at least for some of the residents at KSB, the help is delivered through violent assault, random brutality, and, for the black girls, virginity testing. Of sexual assault, there's also plenty. According to Erla Stegen, it is something that women bring upon themselves. That's how it was for Erica Bornman, who was starved of affection. There was only one person who, well, two people who ever gave me a hug, and that was Erla's brother, Uncle Manfred, and his wife, Auntie Evelyn. And I would look forward to Sundays because I knew that I might get like a few minutes with Uncle Manfred and Auntie Evelyn, and I knew that they would both give me a hug. And so I lived for Sundays because that's the only time... You know, anyone actually cares about me and gives me a hug. Yet suddenly, and for the first time, Erica starts looking forward to confession. 
Muzi is a senior counselor and he has his own office. I usually meet him in one particular little room up in the in the building where the the switchboard is and where um the many of the single women live in dormitories. He's got his little room there. It's got a bed and a desk. You sit down, you he prays, you confess your sins. And oh my word, I mean, like how much how much sin can one little girl who's 16 years old commit when there are no TVs, no radios, no no talking to boys, no nothing. So, you know, maybe I got a bit irritated, so yay, there's a sin. I would I would store up the sins, you know, as I as I thought of them because then at least I have something to confess. And then you pray again that God will please forgive you because, you know, if you haven't confessed it and some, your counselor hasn't prayed with you, then God doesn't forgive you. One evening after confessing my sins and praying, Muzi gives me a hug. It feels so good just to be hugged by someone that actually cares about me. And so that becomes the norm, the hug after confessing of the sins. And I start finding lots of sins to confess just so that I can just please get a hug. And then at some point, the hugs turn to kisses and fondling. I'm anorexic, so honestly, I just about have no curves, but fondling nonetheless. I don't really know what to do with this, um, but it is a man of God, so I'm okay. But he says to me, don't tell anyone about what happens here between us because nobody will understand. We obviously love each other very much and nobody will understand. So it would be better if you don't tell anyone about this. This man had a little girl who was five years old at the time and she had muscular dystrophy. Her name was Miriam. And I would spend two to three hours a day with little Miriam. I would do exercises with her. I was teaching her English. And this bond with this little girl, I think, was what was sustaining me. But the the kissing and the and the and the fondling get a little bit more intense and starts happening a little bit more often. He calls me quite often. He sends his maid to come and call me, and then I get up and go wherever he is. This sometimes happens in the room that he shares with his wife. I'm very conflicted because even though I have had no sex education whatsoever, I mean. In the biology books, they even rip out the chapters dealing with animal reproduction, you know, never mind human. I know that that this is not right, um, but I don't think that he is not right. I think that my reaction is not right because I can start feeling feelings in my body. I'm being aroused, but I don't have the words or the understanding of what is happening to me. I just know that it feels different, but it feels good, but it also feels wrong. And so one day I sit him down when I'm confessing my sins and I say to him, this thing, this lust that they preach about, I'm not sure I understand exactly what it is, but I think that that is what I'm feeling for him. 
And would you believe the fucker makes an appointment for us to go and see Elo? There I sit in one of Elo's lounges and the two of them are facing me in two armchairs and they are looking at me. And he says to me, please, will you tell Uncle Elo what you told me? Confession is meant to be completely sacrosanct, but never mind that. So here I am trying to, trying to put words to what it is that I'm experiencing when I don't have the words, I don't have the understanding. But also at the back of my mind, I know that I cannot tell Uncle Airlaw that this happens when he's fondling and kissing me. So hesitatingly, haltingly, I say that I feel like I've been having feelings of lust towards this man and I know that it's wrong and I'm really sorry And Erlo, in all his wisdom, decides that this girl should be called a slut and a whore and a Delilah and a marriage wrecker. And he goes off at me about what an evil, bad person I am with this asshole sitting there listening to all this knowing full well that I'm feeling all these things because of his actions, but not saying anything. So, Elo then forbids me to have anything to do with him, but he also forbids me to have anything to do with his family. In the blink of an eye, I was no longer allowed to speak to little Miriam. I would walk past her sometimes. She would be sitting outside on the grass and she would go, Miss Boardman, Miss Boardman. And I would just go, hi, Miriam. And I would just keep walking and my heart would just break. But even though Erla Stegen has spoken, Muzikunene is not listening. This man did not stop calling me. He would still send his maid to call me late at night to come and see him. And he didn't stop what he was doing. And now I was conflicted because here is one man of God calling me and there is this other man of God who had forbidden me to have anything to do with him. So I just knew that I was evil. What, what, whatever was happening, I just knew that I was evil. I crave the attention and the affection from this man, but I also don't want it. I, I'm not romantically drawn to him. I'm, I'm really am not. But he's also the only person who pays me any attention, except for Uncle Manfred and Auntie Evelyn, the, you know, for a few minutes on the art Sunday. And so it carries on for three more years. Then one summer's evening, Erica's alone in their rondavel. Her mother's absent, because that's how Erica's mother rolls. There's a knock at the door. It is Musikunene. He closes the door behind him and he locks it. And he says to me, Erica, do you love me? And I say, yes, yes, of, of course I love you. And he says to me, in that case, please get undressed.
I go into the little bathroom. I remember the dress I was wearing. It was white. This is the late 80s, early 90s, so it had shoulder pads. It had a dropped waist with buttons all the way to the dropped waist. I had a white bra on underneath, and I unbuttoned the dress, but I didn't take it off. I just unbuttoned it, and I came out the bathroom, and I looked at him, and I said, I don't know what it is that we're doing, but I don't think that I can do it. And he just looked at me, unlocked the door, and left. Whew. The scene is set. By 1992, Erica Bornman will leave the mission. But back in 1990, the Malinga already has. In the Valley of a Thousand Hills, it's a summer's day in 1990. Lilimpilo is 15 and walking to class when an older man approaches her. Just like Erica, Lilimpilo has had no sex education in her entire life. And so this guy sees me by the waiting room. He makes a comment and I stop and we start chatting. And he gives me a chocolate. I'm excited. I take the chocolate. I go to the school hall. I get inside. I stand in the queue, I collect my food. That particular day, we're eating amas and brown bread and poloni. Just as I'm taking a few spoons, someone says, I need to go to the waiting room because someone's waiting for me there. Now, the waiting room is synonymous with some case, either you're a, a witness in some case or you are the culprit that must be dealt with. So I start going back in the day. What did I do? Who was I with? Where was I? But I can't come up to any conclusion of the matter. So I then go. I arrive there. There's four men. I am generally liked. So I greet in that spirit of knowing that I'm liked. And everyone is sour. And so I curtail my enthusiasm told to sit down, I sit down, and then the conversation starts. We're here to hear your side of the story because we have it in good faith that you and Mdumiseni, the guy who gave me the chocolate, are in a relationship. I'm like, okay, how, how would you have this information? And I think that's what irritated them because I didn't say no. And they say, we have a recorded tape of the conversation you had this afternoon. I'm like, I can actually tell you word for word what I said, what he said. And I said, okay, go ahead, tell us. He said he's heard a lot about me and he's happy and just being happy for me because I was doing well at school. And they're like, no, that's not what we know. You and him are in a relationship. And then I'm like, well, can he say that here? Why is he not here so in my mind, I'm already thinking he probably has other issues with girls. So I am just being tested. Already I've been told that if I deny this, I will be expelled. But if I agree to the crime as it is put here, I will be excused. And then this is a 15-year-old trying to just reconcile what is just happening, what is unfolding. I am told we will not hear from you. We're not educating clever devils here, so you've just become a clever devil. I, I did not mean to be forward, but I'm simply just saying, if that is what he's saying, 
maybe there's something I said and he misread me or I don't understand how he arrives at me liking him for that matter or him liking me. He did not say anything of that sort. But by this point, Pilu's original sin has faded into insignificance because now she's disrespecting her elders, disrespecting them real deep. And so the elders decide to summon her parents to participate in her punishment. The brief my parents get is that I am disrespectful. I talk back to adults. It's not that I am in love with a man. The elders stand around Dilimpila and her parents. One of the elders has a drainage pipe. It has been filled with sand and closed on both ends. Then the elder hands the weapon to Dilimpila's father and they tell him to punish his daughter. He complies. My mother had nothing to say. She was just crying. She was just sobbing bitterly. She was just sobbing. My dad says, from here, you're not going home. You're going the opposite direction of home. If we cross paths, I will not be your father. This was also another rule, that if we expel a child from school, after having consulted with them, the reason we're expelling them is because they're not repentant. So you will not accept them home. Unless they repent, then we can rehabilitate them. But if they're not repentant, you will not accept them at home. I know my dad loves me. He cannot be speaking like this. I know he's just putting up a front for these people. So it's okay. I forgive you. I'll go. I'll leave first so that when we're outside, you'll pick me up and we'll go home. And so, yes, I think that's my thinking. My dad by now had beaten me to a pulp. I leave and they collect everything I own. I had a friend in Australia who collected stamps for me. So I was a stamp collector and this had nothing to do with my parents, but they take everything down to the last stamp. My contacts book, my photo album, my everything, everything. It was small break about half past 10 to 11. It's a mid-morning, beautiful day. It's not a hot day. It's a soft, sun, sunny day. I'm wearing a big jersey on top of what I was wearing because that's all I had because I'm not going home. I walk out. I start my long walk to the gate. When Gilimbilo leaves the mission, the children are called to watch her go. My friends, they're not allowed to cry because if they cry, it's an indication of them standing solidarity with me. So they have to swallow their tears. And I'm walking and I keep looking back and waving. I eventually get outside of the gate. I keep walking. My parents are still not in sight. I had never walked that distance in the time I had been to, to Sizabandu. So I had no understanding of how long it was. But then I kept walking until I see them coming from a distance. And I realized, okay, well, my father's going to pick me up and we're going to go home. My father's going to pick me up and we're going to go home. He was just putting up a front for the people because 
if he doesn't put up a front, he is rebelling together with me in their eyes. My father draws near and he draws closer and he comes closer. He's not driving at a high speed. The speed he's driving indicates that he will stop. He is going to stop. He wants to stop, but he doesn't stop. And he starts passing and he drives and then he disappears eventually. Then it dawns on me that, okay, I am on my own. And tonight I need to figure out where I'm going to sleep. I have nothing, not a penny, nothing. I sit under the tree and I lean against the tree trunk and I'm thinking, what is going to become of me? I'm sitting there, I'm dozing off to sleep. The sun is scorching at this point. So even trying to, to walk is just going to be a mission. Maybe I must just wait until the sun is softer and continue to walk. But if I'm walking from this point, I'm walking hopefully to get to Kranskop, which is I don't know how many kilometers. Where I'm sitting, there's a T-junction intersection leading to a store. They're doing deliveries. I'm not even paying attention, but someone is paying attention and someone's seen me. And towards the evening, it's starting to be dark. So it's starting to be misty. It's starting to be cold. Now I've scotched in the sun for the whole day. And now I'm starting to feel cold from the mist of the evening. And this boy comes and asks me, you've been sitting here all day. What are you doing here? I'm telling some sob story about my aunt because I don't want to be associated with the mission. They're going to take me back there because no one in the mission in their right minds would throw out a child. So obviously I must be so bad that they threw me out that no one is going to want to help me or I'm just telling a lie. So in my head, I must not associate with the mission. I must just talk about some evil aunt that I live with who has thrown me out and I'm trying to get home and I don't have money because she did not give me money. And they give me a place to sleep and they made such a lovely curry. It was such a heartwarming meal of the day I hadn't eaten for such a long time. It was fish, tin fish with putu. I'm just grateful for the meal and they give me a bed. Instead of them sleeping in the bed, I sleep in the bed and I have a good night's sleep. I'm woken up so early in the morning, it's still dark outside and they tell me, you better go because if they find you here, we will lose our jobs. I did not wash, I did not bath, I just left. As News 24's investigation into KSB continues to stretch wider, the bodies are starting to pile up. I'll tell you all about that next week. We've spoken to many colourful characters, but not to Elo Stegen and not to Lydia Dube. Erlo is said to be in hospital in Swane, and after the release of Exodus, he was joined by Lydia Dube, who Erlo previously raised from the dead. The mission has declined making either of the leaders available for an interview, but we have spoken to Erika's former counsellor, Musik Unene. Last month, from Leacorp Correctional Centre, he spoke to News24. He is currently appealing one of his convictions, but he denies that he was ever Erika's counsellor. 
Well, I knew Erica because uh, she lived at the mission. I also lived at the mission with my family. And uh, she was also involved in the music group that I put together. When you talk about me being a counselor of Erica, it's not true. He says that black men like him were not allowed to counsel white girls like Erica. Did I speak to Erica? Yes, I did speak to Erica like I spoke to any other person. And she was close in proximity to me, yes, because she would like to come and help my daughter. Muzigunene sees ulterior motives in Erica's identification of him. It's very difficult for me to understand why she would like to soil my name now. It's very interesting that uh, she's doing it at the time when I'm about to launch my appeal. It's very convenient for her to do that at the moment. And then Muzigunene spins a far-fetched tale involving Erica, Erlo Stegen and Lydia Dube. Erica Bornman did have special relations with Reverend Erlo Stegen. One evening, we found Erica, Lydia Dube and Reverend Stegen in one of the bedrooms naked and having a threesome sex. If you struggle hearing him, he said that, quote, One evening, we found Erica, Lydia Dube, and Reverend Stegen in one of the beds, naked and having threesome sex, end quote. But his tale becomes madder still. She was one of Lydia Dube's lesbian girlfriends. So I am surprised that she is not reporting that. So, according to Muzi, Erica was both having an affair with Erla Stegen and was the lover of Lydia Dube. Another thing relating to the same matter. She claims that uh, she reported me to Ellis Dogan, but I continued to harass her. The truth is, I never harassed her. What she is not saying is that Ellis Dogan is the one she was looking with. So I'm not going to uh, accept responsibility for something I didn't do. So that's, that's really what I would like to say about, about Erica. As for Muzikunene, he was sentenced to life in prison in 2009 on charges of murder, kidnapping, robbery and fraud. And four years later, he was sentenced to another 14 years in jail, this time for defeating the ends of justice, making a false affidavit and, wait for it, the attempted murder of his own son, who was shot in the back three times. He was due to testify against his father in another murder case. Zelimbilo Malinga, after a violent youth, decides to move on and to bury the memories. It would take decades before she revisited the story and shared with us. Today, in 2020, Zelimbilo wants the same thing Erica Bornman wants. She wants the abuse at KSB to stop. A few months ago, Manfred Stegen spoke to News24. Manfred is one of Erlo Stegen's four brothers. It was him and his wife who would hug Erika on Sunday mornings after church. Here he is on the phone in a pre-interview. I don't know what they want. They want to know about, about Erlo as a person. As a, as a young man, as a, as a person. I mean, I lived at home. I know exactly what what went on here between him and his parents, between him and family. If you ask me something, I want to speak the truth. Next time, final episode of Exodus. Last week, at a shambolic online press conference, Kwasi Zabantu invited questions from the media 
and then declined to answer them. Instead, the mission played a pre-recorded statement by Ola Stegen's daughter, Ruth Komrink. The mission simply cannot afford to be anything but completely transparent about something like the alleged abuse of women and children. The leadership and the entire community of the mission take the allegations regarding incidents of abuse very, very seriously. Therefore, an independent legal panel has been appointed to investigate the allegations and to provide their independent report on the matters that have been raised. We'd like to encourage those who have grievances to contact the panel and to ensure that their story is told and that justice may be served. We believe that every perpetrator must be brought to book. We sincerely hope that News24 will assist us to facilitate this on behalf of all those named in their program to ensure that the alleged abuse get their cases heard and restitution is achieved. As always, there's more reaction and breaking news at news24.com. This has been Exodus, Chapter 3, The Escape. It was produced by me, Noctula Magnati, and written by me and Dion Wigert, who is also the creator. The sound engineer is Sean Jeffress, and our production manager is Charlene Droet. Field recording by Alyoshka Kolstok. Reporting on this story is by Tammy Peterson and Azara Karim, with editors Sheldon Marias and Paul Herman. The editor-in-chief is Adrian Basson. Special thanks for this episode goes to Mpora Burife and Shante Schatz. Music courtesy of Getty Images and Epidemic Sound. If there's anything about KSB that you'd like to share with us, you can mail us at exodus at 24.com. If anything came up for you while listening to this episode, you can always call the South African Depression and Anxiety Group on 0800-456-789. This has been a production of News24.